Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, let's go. Today, we're bringing Reimagining Community together with our Legacy Series keynote speaker, Jeffrey Perry. Perry has been active in the working class movement for 50 years studying, writing, and speaking on two of the most important thinkers of race and class in the 20th century. That's Theodore Allen and Hubert Harrison, an unapologetic black atheist and agnostic. So we're picking up with where we left off with Harrison's money woes and his ultimate clash with the burgeoning socialist movement, differences with W.E.B. Du Bois, and his shade towards Marcus Garvey. Today, Jeffrey Perry's conclusion of the father of Harlem radicalism. This Take up the black man's burden, send forth the worst ye breed, and bind our son in shackles to serve your selfish greed, to wait in heavy harness, be deviled and beguiled, until the fate removes you from a world you have defiled. Take up the black man's burden, your lies may still abide, to veil the threat of terror and check your racial pride. Your canon, church, and courthouse may still our sons constrain to seek the white man's profit and work the white man's grain. Take up the black man's burden, reach out and hog the earth, and leave your workers hungry in the country of their birth. Then when your goal is nearest, the end to which you fought, watch others' trained efficiency bring all your hope to naught. Take up the black man's burden, ye cannot stoop to less, Will not your fraud of freedom still cloak your greediness? But by the gods ye worship, and by the deeds ye do, these silent, sullen peoples shall wait your gods and you. Take up the black man's burden until the tale is told, until the balance of hate bear down the beam of gold. And while ye wait, remember that justice, though delayed, will hold you as your debtor till the black man's debt is paid. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi gone.
Let's jump back into the discussion on Harrison with Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry. Chapter five, the debate with the emancipator. I go into that debate. It gets very pointed at sometimes between particularly Chandler Owen and Harrison. And I think people will find it interesting. They have a series called the Crab Barrel series. In chapter six, uh, look a little more closely at Harrison's Negro World writings on leadership, domestic, international issues, education, and how he tries to aid other poets, not just he himself write, but aids other poets, tries to bring them, get them published in the Negro world, his book reviews, his West Indian news notes, which he in initiates. He also writes uh, um, some very good pieces on lynching in the Negro world in 1920. Amongst the black poets that he aids are Claude McKay, Lucian Watkins, Walter Everett Hawkins, and Andy Razaf, who's his friend from previously from the Liberty League, but also, um, you know, it's a great uh, poet, but also a lyricist and would be a lyricist later on for some very notable uh, black musicians. Um, in the book reviews, Harrison, uh, it, that's another regular feature of the Harrison edited N Negro world. And he wrote, it was the first and only regular book review section known for the, uh, to Negro newspaperdom. In chapter seven, Harrison discusses the UNI convention of 1920. The report uh, Eli, uh, Ellie Garcia uh, had made on Liberia. Garvey had, had plans, he wanted to try and go to, to Liberia with his UNIA and uh, people there did not want it. And uh, Gar uh, Garcia was sent to investigate the report and it was a very negative uh, uh, on the prospects of Garvey going there. And, uh, but the, the whole report didn't come out until later, much later. And uh, Harrison, again, offers a further appraisal of Garvey. He also writes When Africa Wakes, that's his second book, which comes out at the, uh, around August, it's dated August, 1920, and that's about when it came out. Um, he starts resurrecting his own Liberty Party a bit. And um, he starts to travel a little more to Virginia and to Philadelphia. And he leaves the managing editorship of the Negro world. And then I have a little section, including Harrison's major ideological influences on Garvey. Um, regarding the editorials book and theater reviews, um, he does a section, there's a section on Harrison's meditations, which was in his papers. He'd have a, a whole section on meditations and they're very thought provoking. And uh, I would encourage people when they get to um, volume two to take a look at them because I try and include quite a number of them. And uh, he also writes on the Ku Klux Klan, the lineup on the color line. Uh, he does book reviews on the Negro in America, on Thorsten Veblen, a very popular writer in the day, uh, does more theater reviews, but he's constantly having financial difficulties. Um, but again, he's got all these other columns going now, West Indian news notes he had started, poetry for the people, all that he had started. On book reviewing, Harrison offers what I think is some wonderful words of wisdom on book reviewing. And I'm gonna read just two paragraphs of it for you. Uh, he, he writes, and this, this passage that he writes on how to review books has been picked up by Scott McLemy, um, 
and others, you know, prominent book reviewers today. And he, um, he writes, remember that in a book review, you are writing for a public who want to know whether it is worth their while to read the book about which you are writing. They are primarily interested more in what the author set himself to do and how he does it than in your own private loves and hates. In the next place, respect yourself and your office so much that you will not complacently pass and praise drivel and rubbish. Grant that you don't know everything. You still must hear true to the lights of your knowledge. Give honest service. Only so will your opinion come to have weight amongst your readers. Remember, too, that you cannot well review a book on African history, for instance, if that is the only work on a subject that you've read. And it's great integrity he takes to his uh, book reviewing. And uh, compared to some of what some of the book reviews I've seen and you know, dealt with over the years, I just I fall back on Harris. And I say, wow, he's really very strong in this. Um, in chapter nine, uh, I, I get into, it covers 1920, uh, continues to cover his book reviews, uh, Lincoln and Liberty series, but also his Lafayette theater reviews and work on Negro actors. Um, and also some pieces on D. Hamilton Jackson, who's his student uh, boyhood friend uh, from St. Croix and the leader, uh, activist trade union leader in St. Croix. And uh, they had been in touch and his more correspondence with Jackson discussed there. Harrison would also be in touch with Rothschild Francis, another Crucian, um, uh, a labor activist and political activist, as well as other people, one of whom I mentioned earlier before we went on. One of his close friends was a fellow named James Kanagata, who, for those familiar with the theater, may know his son, Canada Lee, who in the late 30s, 40s, and 50s was a very good Black actor. Uh, he changed his name to Canada Lee, but he was son of James Kanagata um, and others, a yeah, number of others. Um, Tulsa erupts in May, May 31st, June 1st, 1921. That's Tulsa, Oklahoma. Harrison writes some very insightful pieces on that. Um, and we go to chapter 12, and that's the period of Garvey's arrest. And I discuss the background to Garvey's getting arrested. Garvey's ultimately convicted on mail fraud. Um, but, you know, I review a lot of the uh, literature, uh, Garvey's charge, Harrison's statement and memorandum, because he was uh, interviewed, as were many of the black leaders on Garvey, how the pressure on Garvey mounts. I also detail how Garvey for a short period, uh, Harrison for a short period, taught at the uh, toward chiropractic at the New York City School of Chiropractic. And, uh, and that's essentially what I talk about in chapter 12. In chapter 13, uh, he's continuing his search for work. Um, and he does a little work with uh, the single tax and uh, single tax movement. He's struggling for citizenship and is able to obtain his citizenship in uh, 1922, this was after many years. Um, and again, uh, I think I mentioned last time, but on his citizenship papers, uh, let me just change my view here. On his citizenship papers, Harrison is listed as white. And I go into details on that because there was a lot of difficulty for Crucians getting citizenship papers, particularly black Crucians. Um, 
And he starts to develop his um, board of education, uh, his first board of education lectures. Uh, and um, let's see, then we move to the next chapter, January, 1923, December, 1923. This chapter is very interesting because I spoke at the Bado House recently in Halden. And I mentioned how uh, in January, 1923, there was a cross, I think it was January 1923, uh, I might have the date slightly off, a cross burned by the KKK on Garrett Mountain, which is the mountain overlooking Patterson, New Jersey. The KKK was uh, resurrecting itself in the 20s in the Midwest, and they were trying to move into New Jersey. And Harrison, ever brave and dauntless, goes out to Patterson and uh, delivers a critique of the KKK and a challenge to them. And uh, there were a few of them that tried to heckle him. And according to all of the papers that covered it, he put them totally in their place. And he challenged them to come back for a, a more serious debate. And they didn't show. Um, but, you know, Harrison, as I said, he's very bold, very dauntless. Um, in this chapter 14, I also have some, uh, some assessment by Harrison of Garvey and his trial. And I think people will find it very interesting because um, he, uh, two of the articles, I believe Harrison, if he didn't write himself, he influenced greatly for, they were for New York paper. And also I, um, I discuss Harrison's article on uh, prepared for the nation entitled the Virgin Islands, a colonial problem very long article. And it's one of the best pieces in that period on the Virgin Islands. And I encourage people to read the article if they can, which is in a Hubert Harrison reader, or at least read uh, much of it is discussed in uh, volume two. And uh, I think people will get a whole new understanding on the Virgin Islands situation back then and still today, because I have friends, Virgin Island activists who are still um, grappling with what the U.S. takeover of the Virgin Islands has meant, you know, and people who still can't locate the documents verifying their family's ownerships of properties and a host of things. So um, then uh, also I want to mention that Harrison delivered three talks in 1920, one in 1922 and two in 1923. One was at the New York City Hall, Aldermanic Chamber, uh, on the Brother in Black, uh, uh, one in June 1923 on the Negro and the Nation, and uh, a third talk, which I'm not finding right here now, but he did three talks on radio. Um, and these talks were, they were recorded, and at least one of them was sent to the Edison Company at, at Newark, New Jersey, for broadcasting from their station, WJZ, in compliance with a special request from the Edison Company. Now, I've tried by various means to locate these talks, but so far I've not had any success. There are still a, reportedly, I think, over a million uncatalogued items in their archives in New Jersey. But if any people can come up with any great creative ideas on how to locate these uh, talks, because I know of no audio of Harrison speaking. Similarly, I know of no video of Harrison speaking 
Although a friend of mine from St. Croix is convinced he saw a 15-minute snippet of Harrison speaking, but he can't remember where it was. what? We've got mail. Or should I say, where we're headed has got mail. In addition to the show website, which is at www.podbean.com, where you can find all relevant information from past episodes, links, resources, and so much more. We've got a new email address where you can reach out and you can send comments, you can send suggestions, and you can also send voice notes with your own personal touch. Send us your feedback, give us a compliment, or give us a suggestion. You can reach us at bndcpodcast at gmail.com. That's bndcpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, our show website is www.podbean.com Okay, no lie. The Puritan one with Paula. Ciao. This is fire. I'm telling you, y'all got me fired up. I, I can relate. Hi, this is Frederick from Pasadena, and you are listening to the WWH Podcast. We're back with Jeffrey's Legacy Talk on the atheist and agnostic Hubert Harrison and the struggle for equality from the years 1918 to 1927. FYI, his second volume covering Harrison is published on Columbia University Press in December 2020 and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. The book focuses on Harrison's latter years of speaking out against both the role of white supremacy as a retardant to progressive social change and the centrality of struggle against white supremacy to progressive social change efforts. Here again is Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry. Going on, just a few more chapters and then we'll sum this up and we'll get to Q&A or wherever we want to go. Uh, chapter 15, Harrison writes a series of very important articles for the Boston Chronicle, which was a weekly from January to June of 1924. I think people will find these fascinating. Some of Harrison's best editorials, and they go back and they cover a wide range of things. And um, he uh, also uh, writes a piece. Well, well, what happens is there's discussion, there's plans to put together um, a new issue of Survey Graphic. It's a publication out there uh, under the helmsmanship, if you will, of Paul Kellogg. But they want to have Alain Locke be the principal editor, and they want to put out a Survey Graphic issue on the new Negro. And in a, a layout plan for it, they have a host of articles, including Harrison's article on the White uh, War, White World War, and the uh, I think it was the White World War, something like that, and the colored races. Um, but Harrison's article was um, one that was pulled from the article when it first appeared, when the publication first appears in 25, as well as from Locke's um, 
publication, book publication, The New Negro. And uh, the thinking by, I believe it was Barbara Foley, one historian and others, was that they, ju they just found Harrison's writings too radical for what they were trying to do. And again, Harrison's writings are literary and political, and Locke is essentially doing um, literary writings as it gets discussed in volume two. Harrison's last efforts uh, I focus on are his International Colored Unity League, and that runs from 1924 through his death in 1927. And um, he attempted to do for the Negro the things which the Negroes need to have done without depending upon or waiting for the cooperation, cooperative action of other people. Urged black people to develop race consciousness as a defensive means to be aware of their racial oppression and to use that racial awareness to unite, organize, and respond as a group. The 24 ICUL platform had political, economic, and social justice planks urging protests, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency, and cooperatives. Included as a central idea was the founding of a, quote, Negro state, not in Africa, as Marcus Garvey would have done, but in the United States. Interestingly, in a few more years, the U.S. Communist Party would advocate um, a Negro state down south. Um, and um, part five, uh, part five, uh, part four, excuse me, is the final section. Um, the mid, uh, in 1924 into 25, besides doing work with the ICUL, he does a Midwest tour. Harrison does a Midwest tour and he goes out uh, to the Midwest trying to campaign, uh, particularly campaigning against the Klan. And, uh, but he's, he's not getting paid the money he's supposed to be getting paid. It's a very difficult times, but he comes back. And then he begins um, uh, again, or picks up again, his New York City Board of Education lectures. He also has, um, he works with Amy Ashwood Garvey, the first wife of Marcus Garvey, ghostwriting uh, a, a book with her on the rise and fall of Marcus Garvey. And there are various editions of it, um, not published, but uh, around. And um, he also has an affair with her for a while. And this is all discussed in the book. And um, he also is on a founding committee of the New York Public Library Negro Collection, uh, which is the committee that grows into uh, the Schomburg Center. He's one of the officers along with Schomburg. And uh, so he's staying very active in the Harlem community. And uh, then again, 26, into, throughout 26, he's lecturing for the Board of Education. He does this for four or five years. Uh, he, he lectures for the International Colored Unity League. At NYU, he lectures. He lectures at the Harlem Educational Forum. He lectures at the Workers' School and the Communist Party and Institute for Social Studies. Um, his uh, Lafayette Theater Strike, uh, he does a Lafayette Theater Strike. He gets involved in that and sides with the Black workers against uh, uh, a union that uh, didn't, he didn't think was representing them enough. He does reviews of um, the, the, the book, quote, Nigger Heaven, um, critical reviews. He uh, reassesses Garvey's divorce trial or assesses Garvey's divorce trial in December, 1926. 
He writes for Michael Gold, who's associated with the communist uh, new masses. And um, I, I have a wonderful picture of Harrison teaching World Problems of Race Course. And that's the picture that's on the cover of volume two. I don't know if you can see this very well, but that's him with about 78 people. Uh, he would have his evening courses. And amongst his, I, I just want to read this syllabus. I'm just about finished here. But uh, his syllabus for the World Problems of Race course, if I can get this larger, bear with me for a second. Okay, chapter one, the rise of the modern idea of race, ancient and modern views contrasted, race theories and definition, uh, influence of prejudice upon race theories, the, re the measurement of intelligence. Se uh, uh, next lesson, expansion and dominance of Europeans. You go, I'm going to cut out the uh, subtitles. The third chapter, The Black Man's Burden, Africa. Fourth, The Race Problems in America. Five, India and the British Empire. Six, China and the Powers. Seven, Japan, the Frankenstein of European imperialism. Eight, The Revolt of Islam. Nine, Culture and Religious Aspects of Race. Ten, The Nemesis of White Imperialism. This is just extraordinary, the breadth of his writing. Let me just come back now where I was. Um, I just want to finish this up. Okay. And um, so in the last two chapters, Harrison starts, he writes some pieces for the Pittsburgh Courier. Nice pieces, very good pieces. Uh, give uh, an up-to-date view of where he stands at that time. He uh Reprints. Oh, he comes out with a new publication. This is his final publication. First, it's called The Embryo of the Voice of the Negro, and then it's The Voice of the Negro. And he includes uh, uh, the program and principles of the International Colored Unity League, etc. And uh, it's a magazine that he really wants to get out, but it only lasts. Uh, the Embryo comes out in February, and uh, The Voice comes out, I think, in uh, March and April, maybe May, maybe just March and April. Um, his last month in chapter 20, uh, his world problems of race uh, lectures are discussed and the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Courier articles. Uh, he lecture, lectures at the Brooklyn Queens YMCA, Independent Color Political Club of New Rochelle, etc. cetera. Uh, he corresponds with J.A. Rogers from Paris. Rogers is in Paris. He writes on Harlem's neglected opportunities, and then he dies young. He dies uh, in Bellevue Hospital. He goes in there for some minor treatment, he thought, and uh, as he's ready to be re released, he takes a turn for the worst and dies um, apparently from appendicitis. Although I have doctors today who have said that, that that was probably what it was based on what they've read, but I also have uh, family members who never trusted that, ver you know, the version that he just died from natural causes, so to speak. Uh, in conclusion, just these final words, Harrison was ahead of his time. When Harrison died, Arthur Schomburg eulogized, delivered the eulogy at his funeral, which was a massive funeral in Harlem. And he said, Harrison, uh, Harrison was ahead of his time. That's what Schomburg said. That's how he concluded it. And that's why I think one of the reasons that points to his importance today Harrison understood white supremacy to be central to capitalist rule in the U.S. 
He emphasized that those desiring significant social change would have to struggle against white supremacy to succeed. He emphasized that black people should develop race consciousness as both a measure of self-defense and as a key strategic component in that struggle. He understood that in the US, African-Americans are the touchstone of the modern democratic idea. He understood that while the color line exists, the cant of democracy, the chanting of democracy is intended as dust in the eyes of white voters and used in wartime to make sordid imperialist aims. He understood that true democracy and equality for African-Americans implies a, a revolution startling to even think of. So with those thoughts, I think I would like to end for now. Rove, if you're there. Thank you, Jeff. And a huge thanks to our AHA and BNDC family who participated with us in this legacy series for the last two seasons. This kind of knowledge is really important to what we do and how we appreciate the totality of our own stories. I have to say the learning about Harrison over the course of these last couple months and years has really been affirming. Uh, it's been the kind of thing that I identify with the feelings and the observations and the critiques that people like Harrison have made along the way um, in movement and art, identity and political struggle, uh, blackness. And that's really amazing to see how someone, particularly someone that came from the same place that I came from, just on a personal note, but someone who is an atheist and unapologetically black and unapologetically atheist can take part in such critical conversations that built or helped to build a movement of civil rights in this country that has been whitewashed as Christian. So thank you, Dr. Perry. And thank you, Hubert Harrison. So, Where We're Headed is approaching the end of our first season. We're not quite there yet, so stick with us. We've got a few more good episodes in the can. But our next season is going to be just as impactful. We've got continuing conversations with my brother Verdell Wright on deconstruction, LGBTQ and faith, self-care, after faith. What's going on with the young people in Gen Z? We've got an episode produced by recent Spellman graduate and our assistant producer, Dre. And we're looking abroad to what's happening on the scene in Africa. Here's a bit more of what's coming up. These are the type of things I, I would just rebel against. Like, no, it, it shouldn't be the case. I was able to live in harmony with a non-Muslim, even though I was a Muslim. My, my dad was imam. My grandfather was imam. My mom's brother was imam. Everybody was imam around me. So I was trained to be imam myself. So I, um, you know, grew up in that. The abuses and the cruelty is what begin to shift my head a little bit. My mom, for instance, was married when she was 13 years old. She got me when she was 14 years old. She was divorced by my dad when she was 16, which means I was two years old. And when I say divorce, I'm not saying going to court to get divorced. No, she was just abandoned. And she has nothing to say. Despite his position of being imam. But that's not even the worst. The worst is my dad's first child was older than my mother. And you know, 
Churches, by definition, are not designed to be progressive. They, to the extent that they have been or that they are, it is essentially uh, a last resort to preserve the institution and to make sure that it doesn't become completely obsolete. But um, I, I mean, I, you know, so, so much of what I say sometimes comes back to me being a musician, but I'm just saying as a musician, I, I, I know what my congregations, when I play for them, I know what they want. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I was able to do it as long as I did, but because I understood what those people wanted. Um, and they would change in subtle ways between different congregations and different denominations. But um, I knew that I that there's an expectation to continue tradition when I come there. And so I, when I say that, you know, they're not designed to be traditional, I don't mean that as an epithet. I just mean to say, like, they're designed to hold tradition. I actually just started my own NGO. We work primarily in the northern region of Ghana in um, low poverty, low education areas. And we support women who are at risk of witchcraft accusations um, in various ways. They have comes that um, women who have been accused of witchcraft are sent to live in. So we've worked there um, supporting women that live there and trying to reintegrate some of them back into uh, normal society. And then we've also done livelihood programs where we train women who are at risk of witchcraft accusations so that they can become financially independent which lowers the risk of them being accused in the future. So yeah, that's what we do. A lot of preachers, particularly men, this is the only thing they can do. And I don't say that to be any rude or disrespectful. This is what they can do. This is what their talent shines. And if they don't have this, they are regular Joe Schmo. This is their one chance to quote unquote be somebody. And without this, they ain't nobody. Not, not, and not in the ways that culturally matter. Um, and so they hold on and they stay pastor until they're basically a bag of dust. <laughs> and they stay and they stay and they stay. And what happens is that generations of people leave. And particularly when you get to like, you know, late Gen X, um, early millennials like myself, and then even further on, People moved on, you know, like people have a different understanding of the world now and they just aren't willing to willingly sign up for a place that's going to degrade gay people or talk about, you know, women being subservient or whatever. Like people aren't willing now to to say, oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to sign up. Thanks for listening. I'm Roger. Join us again on Where We're Headed.